Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Theresa May is in Brussels again. We are in Cambridge again. We are not always going to be talking about Brexit. In fact, quite soon, we're going to be talking about lots of other things. But this week, one more go. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And the LRB has a new podcast of its own called The State Of. And it's hosted by LRB editors Joanna Biggs and Tom Crew. It aims to take the temperature of contemporary culture. The second episode is now available, in which Joe and Tom discuss the state of the nation with LRB writers Lorna Finlayson and William Davis. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts or on the LRB website at lrb.co.uk forward slash state of. Helen Thompson and Kenneth Armstrong are with me. It's Wednesday morning. I'm always saying that. There will be an announcement, we think, later tonight. We don't know what it'll be, and we've learnt not to speculate. We're going to take a step back and try and look at some of the things that have happened this week, maybe some of the precedents that have been set in British parliamentary politics. But also, I think it's time to start trying to draw some wider lessons about why Brexit has been so hard. And we'll come on to that at the end. But also some really interesting new polling of public opinion about just how frustrated people are getting with this kind of politics. But Kenneth, let's do the law to start with, if people will bear with us just for a few minutes, because it does matter. So something that has happened this week is, unprecedentedly, as I believe we're, we're meant to think, the Cooper Act, as it is now, it was a bill and now it's an act because it's passed into law, was rushed through both Houses of Parliament. Has it actually changed anything? So on the one hand, we're told this extraordinary thing has happened, this remarkable precedent, quote unquote, Parliament has taken some form of control. On the other hand, when you look at what Theresa May is doing today, would she be doing anything any different without the passing of this legislation? And I guess there's two things there. One is a question about what does this tell us about the state of the relationship between the executive and parliament in the Brexit process? And secondly, what does it actually do? And I think on the first point, it's quite a telling example of the way in which parliamentarians do in some sense seize control and that it becomes their business. And Yvette Cooper had her private member's bill rushed through both houses of parliament. But then the question is, but what does it actually then do? What does it then achieve? And it seems it's a bit like the indicative votes where Parliament took control to have the indicative votes and then didn't come up with anything substantive as an outcome. In terms of the Act, which came into force, it required the Prime Minister yesterday to come forward with a motion to seek an extension to a particular date. And the motion that was agreed was an extension to the 30th of June. Which which was her date anyway. Which was precisely what the Prime Minister had already done. So that meant that subclauses 1 to 4 of of the Act had already been fulfilled and that was it. It did give Tory MPs an opportunity to show just how little confidence they have in the Prime Minister by effectively a third of them voting against and close to a third abstaining. And I think that's important in that sense. What both the indicative votes do and this did was at least then create this kind of showground for where people are at on various positions. That, you know, that but that's not what legislation is but for. But that's not what legislation, legislation is for. Legislation is meant to be something else. That's, that's what 
parliamentary debates before. And really, crucially, I think, one of the things we see with this is it becomes this kind of one-shot legislation. It's not legislation to create an enduring legal framework to manage a difficult process. And this has been the problem pretty well all along in that we then have a kind of escalation of the debate into this much more constitutional realm because we haven't put in place really appropriate legal frameworks, legislative frameworks, enduring the try to at least think through how things would go down the line. So, of course, I mean, it was bonanza for UK constitutional lawyers who took to Twitter in their droves to debate the vexed question of whether ministers could instruct the monarch not to give royal assent to a private member's bill, and that was all good fun for, for a period of time. For people who like that kind of Twitter. If you like that kind of, of, of Twitter. But in terms of what now happens with, with the request for an extension, very little in this act constrains the prerogative power of the government at the moment. Theresa May can negotiate a much longer extension. The only thing that it would constrain would be a limit to say the extension couldn't be any earlier than the 22nd of May. Beyond that, it could be much longer. The other thing that it did do was change the mechanism by which the government can change the exit date from being an affirmative process by which both houses actually have to agree to one, a negative one, which basically the government simply changes the exit date. And this almost certainly will not happen, but say the EU 27 refused a longer extension and either stuck to their guns or or even tried to force the issue earlier. Does this legislation change anything there? I mean, presumably then we're back at where we always could have ended up. We probably won't, but could have ended up, which is then Parliament just faces a choice. It's got to revoke Article 50 if it doesn't want no deal. This legislation doesn't change anything about that. I'm not saying that will happen. It almost definitely won't happen. But just say it goes catastrophically wrong for Theresa May and they all fall out and chaos ensues, then we're just back with Parliament having to make its ultimate choice. It was always wrong to present this as the legislation that was going to formally take no deal off the table in some legislative sense. All it was ever going to do, all it ever could do, was limit the discretion of the government in how it handled its international negotiations by trying to limit that prerogative power. If at the end of the day there is no agreement, then as a matter of European Union law, the treaties cease to apply as of the date of you know, the 12th of April. Come on to Helen in a second. You did, and I imagine you're rare in this, you did watch the debate in the House of Lords where it was Russia. Was it, was it a farce? I mean, was it, how did it come across to you as, as a piece of parliamentary action? Anything meaningful there? Um, it was interesting in that it came on the back of this was supposed to have been gone through last week and then there was the kind of filibuster that took place which pushed things on a bit. So the, the Lords were in a fairly tetchy mood, uncharacteristically uh, tetchy. But there was also the problem of who was to answer for this bill in the Lords. It wasn't a government bill and therefore was the government going to speak to the amendments that were being proposed or the debate in general? And various people seem to end up adopting this role of adopting this piece of legislation. So it was replete with metaphors of who's holding the baby, who's the who's the, the birthing mother of this bill, who's responsible, and all sorts of kind of weird... So it was the kind of more orphan Annie bill than it was the Cooper bill in the end. From that point of view, it was somewhat comic. If that's how you get your laughs. Helen, do you think it changed anything? I don't think it changed anything in substantive terms for the reason that Kenneth said. I I think it it changes 
something in terms of where we are constitutionally because it was an attempt by a majority in the legislature to check the executive's power in ways that don't readily fit with our constitutional settlement. And I think one way of thinking about this is is that Parliament set something in motion when it agreed to invoke Article 50, which basically led to a point where there would be a choice between the withdrawal agreement that the executive negotiated with the European Union and leaving without such an agreement. Then later, during this withdrawal Act of 2018, and then the motions that have been passed since Christmas with the Speaker's help, it has basically tried to interject itself into the process in ways that don't sit readily with our Constitution, because negotiations with other powers, other states, in this case meaning the EU, are the prerogative of the Executive. Now, there's all kinds of reasons to do with the EU and the importance of treaties and the way in which the EU makes decisions that make the relationship between the EU, the executive and the legislature in any single country, any member state, really um, rather difficult and I think sort of structurally prone to go wrong and they have gone wrong in this case. But I think it is it will have consequences for UK's politics going forward that we have seen the legislature unwilling to accept something that has been a constitutional constraint on what it does in the past. So is the possibility here that, okay, this is a one-off piece of legislation, the precedent it sets is that there will be more attempts to inject one-off legislation into the the running of British politics? I mean, I think there's that whole argument about to what extent do we need Parliament to put in place legislative frameworks that then constrain the prerogative. We now realise the executive power isn't just domestic but also is exercised on the international plane and in fact the international plane allows executive power in a more unconstrained fashion and therefore there's a kind of catch-up. We saw already with things like the going to war etc. So it's, it's part of that kind of discussion. And I think interestingly the kind of constraint on prerogative that we we saw with the Gina Miller case and you know there had to be then this act of parliament to authorise the Prime Minister to trigger in the first place. On the back of that you can see that Bill Cash has written to Donald Tusk to say when you're considering this long extension I believe that as a matter of UK law our government is acting unlawfully you know on the back of this kind of Gina Miller style of argument. I mean the, the argument is completely spurious as far as I can see but an attempt to at least sow some doubt in the minds of the other leaders that, in fact, that Theresa May is somehow acting unlawfully in trying to negotiate a long term. Is that actually risky that this becomes a tit for tat thing as well? That you know, one off legislation one way can be matched with one off attempts at one off legislation the other way. Or litigation, in, in, or, in or his litigation, case, is really yeah. what he was looking at. I think it's made clear that the EU introduces a great deal of this into politics because it works through treaties. But it's not the only example of this, and it certainly works this problem of the relationship between the executive and the legislature when the executive conducts negotiations with another state with trade agreements. I mean, you can actually see it in US politics in the relationship between the US executive and the US Congress over various trade agreements where the executive, I mean, the George Bush junior administration negotiated various supposedly called free trade agreements, but really preferential trade agreements. And then Congress would refuse to discuss them, let alone ratify them. So the more that you have important 
political questions that are decided by international treaty between executives in which the formal role of the legislature is only comes to say yes or no and then the whole thing can fall away if the legislature says no the more we're going to see of of these kinds of, of problems it's partly i think the result of basically taking things out of national democratic politics making them more about treaty-based international politics and then trying to reconcile that with democratic politics the eu does that in a very direct way because it's a treaty-based union although it has got into the problem in part because of these dynamics that it hasn't had a new treaty in a, in a decade now because actually ratifying these treaties gets into all the problems that we've been seeing with the um, withdrawal agreement. It isn't just an EU-specific problem. The, the European Parliament does play a role in the EU's trade negotiations in the, sense that, in the sense that it often has to give its consent. And the way in which the EU manages that, of course, is by bringing in the European Parliament early on in the process. And what we've discovered in the UK's context is bringing Parliament in at the end of the process has failed spectacularly. I agree that there's, there is something that's distinctive about the role in which the European Parliament played, but this issue about national parliaments and treaties is not simply just a feature of what's happened in this case. I mean, it's, it's the reason why, for instance, that the French ended up and the Dutch ended up saying no to the Constitutional Treaty in 2005, even though that was done via referendum. It's the, some of the reasons why Ireland got into the difficulties in which it did with the Lisbon Treaty. The basic mode with which, operandus which the EU works with, is that it's done at EU level, then you have ratification through domestic politics, even though domestic politics has been squeezed out of what has happened previously. So in the vote in Parliament on extending Article 50 to the 30th of June, which passed uh, with a large majority but only with the support of the opposition parties. And essentially, the DUP voted against it, large numbers of Conservative MPs voted against it, many abstained, including ministers, including cabinet ministers. The Prime Minister abstained because she wasn't there. Is this also a one-off? Because if, if that, in any sense, carries through, this government will not be able to govern for much longer. Conventionally, if a major vote in the Commons can only be passed with the overwhelming support of opposition parties, the government is on its last legs. But this is where I think we have, we're back to the consequences of the Fixed Term Parliament Act, in that we do not have the same mechanism any longer for governments to come to an end, because the government can never get in the position essentially where it can say to its backbenchers, either you back us or we're going to have a general election, this parliament ends. That is how, in part, that Edward Heath got the European Communities Act, as it was called, through the House of Commons. That's how John Major got the Maastricht Treaty through the House of Commons. But what we have now, and I think this is why this is constitutionally worrying, we have a parliament that won't take upon itself what it could still do, which is bring this government down in a vote of confidence. And yet, having not been willing to do that, it wants to put in its place as government itself. It wants parliament to govern when actually Parliament's role at this point in the crisis is to bring the government down if it no longer has confidence in the government. And the government can stagger on because it can't use the confidence vote itself to get round the problem. So this is the thing, the thing I find it hard to imagine is what would the government staggering on look like? I mean, the relationship with the DUP seems to have broken down. The parliamentary Conservative Party is divided in three now. I mean, essentially, there's the hardcore who voted against the abstainers and then the loyalists. And you, you really have to be a loyalist now to be backing May under these conditions. How would a government function for months? I mean, maybe for weeks, but for months under these conditions? I don't get it. I mean, I suppose one issue is whether there's the kind of the intermediary step of what's the cabinet going to do specifically? And I think that's where the extension issue has to be managed carefully by 
the, the Prime Minister because if it if it's an extension that can end early, then that may keep people on board. But if it looks like a, just a long extension, then I can't see people like Andrew Leadsom staying in the Cabinet. I can't see her being in that Cabinet. And if the Cabinet defections are, are significant, then... There are enough loyalists that she could fill the Cabinet. Again, I mean, look at Jeremy Corbyn. You can you can fill these posts when many people abandon you, but can you govern? I think that this would be very difficult. I think there was a difference between the government and a shadow Cabinet here. I think the only way that this government looks like it's coming to an end is if a significant number of the Cabinet go and tell her that they will not continue if she continues in office. But I think the other thing we've got to factor in here, which I think is adding to the crisis, is... is a lot of MPs simply do not want a general election. Particularly when you look at the, the polling figures this week, which have Labour and Conservative, yeah. and you're absolutely on the same point. There is They've fallen down into the low 30s yeah. when both of them were at 40-plus in the last general election. Ironically, Change UK, the, the people who should be benefiting, are most frightened exactly. of an election they, they, at all. They don't want an election. The DUP don't want an election. The Liberal Democrats Tell don't want Tell you who do. The SNP would love <laughs> yeah. an election. Yeah. The SNP are perhaps the... Uh, uh, maybe Plaid come I'm not sure about that. This is a real problem because this is part of, I think, the way in which Parliament is engaging with what is going on is, is, I think, constitutionally irresponsible. It's constitutionally irresponsible because the majority of them are trying to replace the government and they are acting out of fear of a general election when the logic of the situation now should mean that a general election has to happen. But if you have way too many MPs who are nervous about having an election, in part many of them because they have stood on promises that they have effectively repudiated since the last general election, then we have a political crisis and, and I think, a constitutional crisis. As you know, I've been saying for a while that the logic points to general election, but I'm coming to learn the limits of logic in politics because... It's not just the, the MPs who, who have repudiated the previous commitments as those who actually want to fulfil their commitments as they see it but feel that actually that's not happening yeah. and they're also worried about what the backlash is against them even if they are in leave supporting constituencies and have a leave view themselves. So one more thing about what's going on at the moment and then we'll try and take a wider view here. So the other process that's underway is the negotiations if that's what they are they don't seem to be negotiating much at the moment between the Labour Party and the government over the possibility of some shared understanding of the political declaration that could be attached to the withdrawal bill that would pass the House of Commons and they don't seem to be going anywhere the bit I don't get in a process where I don't get a lot is as we've discussed many times in this three-way choice between no deal May's deal, if we'll call it that, and no Brexit, you can use one of the unpalatable options to threaten people towards the centre who might otherwise stick to their guns on the other one. But in a sense, you need to threaten Labour people with no deal and you need to threaten Tories with no Brexit. Theresa May, the government, are now negotiating with Labour at just the point where that threat more or less has been removed. And actually, you're seeing that the, the removal of that threat, so the choice is some deal or no Brexit, is starting to splinter the ERG and having that effect. But the timing is all wrong. I don't get it. Why, if this was going to actually bite, you needed the no Brexit threat to be applied early in the process. And now is where you need the no deal threat. Now, I see why politically it's very, very fraught at this this close to the wire to threaten no deal. But it's like these negotiations are happening under the conditions where the thing that would give them bite has just been taken off the table. 
Absolutely, but I think that there's an, there's another issue, and that is 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 that it isn't just that the ERG splintered. You could say that the ERG is a bit more back together again. Look at the size of the dissent in the House of Commons on the Conservative side yesterday, and the calculation now might be from some is as well a longer extension still allows a possibility for more of a Brexit of the kind that they might want. This is the scenario where we get a new leader, the new leader absolutely, yeah. kicks over all the traces and, and we're off again. Yeah, because they have got something else to play for now, which is a change in the leadership of the Parliamentary Conservative Party. And given that quite a number of these ERG MPs have had that desire quite high in their motivational structure for quite a long time, they're not in a position, I think, where it's simply thinking it looks like Brexit is disappearing because there's a different story that they can tell themselves which is is that get rid of Theresa May put somebody else in place and things change. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Okay, it's on the Labour Conservative attempt to forge a compromise. I can see how it might be in their interests to do that. But absent something that will really frighten them into doing it, I don't see it happening. And I don't see that thing that would frighten them into doing it yet. Am I, am I wrong? I think that the issue for Labour is always going to be the same one, which is, in the end, they don't want to end up having to carry some of the blame for how this pans out. I mean, I think there are, there's a sense in which they might want to play for process and say well okay but it will have to be a confirmatory referendum whatever that is as a way of then sort of saying something to its supporters but in substance it looks like it's going to end up being very very minimalist if they get to any substantive point and they would have to be something they would fear carrying the blame for more than this and there isn't there is something to fear though for the leadership i think it's another matter getting their thing through the house of commons is fear of these european parliament elections because both main parties are in a position where they're highly likely to lose some of their votes to others, whether it be the Brexit party in the case of the Conservatives or whether it be the TIG change in the case of Labour. And they can take away the prospect of those European Parliament elections by reaching an agreement. Do you think that fear is strong enough to counter the fear of being responsible for a Tory Brexit? Even a, even a softened, I'm not toned saying, down I'm not, I, I, I don't pretend to have any insight into like what judgment is going to be made about that um, trade-off, but I, I don't think we should underestimate the fear of these European Parliament elections, particularly, I think, once we can see, which I think is clearer than it was two weeks ago, how much a fear of having a general election on both sides is playing into this political situation. I mean, the last thing I would have thought that most of these MPs want at the moment is to have to be subject to the views of their constituents on both sure, sides of the... But agreement. surely the Labour leadership, the people in the room, John McDonnell, Jeremy Cormier, Seamus Milne, Rebecca Long-Bailey, they really still want a general election, I think. 
I think that they've they, got one shot at becoming a government, I and this is their shot. That they, 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 they do, but um, given that we're in a political position where everything about our constitutional arrangements would suggest a general election should be happening, and that is what is not happening, other things are being put in place, which is an essentially an attempt led by someone in the Labour Party who's opposed to Jeremy Corbyn's leadership to go about things in a different way by trying to have Parliament take control. Now, I think that's not possible for the reasons that Kenneth well, this um, someone said. Is Yvette Cooper. So that someone is... Well, it's not um, Tom Watson, because there's also that going no, on it's, too. It's, no, it's um, Yvette Cooper. So it doesn't suggest to me that there is a great desire in, within the Parliamentary Labour Party, beyond the leadership itself, to have a general election. But going back to the European Parliament elections, I mean, it, it now looks to me as if this is pretty likely to happen, that there will be these elections. So in a sense, both sides are going to have to face up to that reality. But they um, could bring them, they could stop that happening by making an agreement. Time is tight. But time is still incredibly tight on that, and particularly because, you know, domestic legislation is going to have to get through. I mean, I, in a way, I think they probably have to now start scenario planning for what they think those elections would look like. And is there any benefit? I mean, if you're Theresa May, don't you think, well, actually, wouldn't it be good to road test her deal in a European Parliament elections, be a Conservative government that says, well, here is the deal that we've got. Here's but it's a pretty, it's it. a pretty strange way of road testing it. I mean, it is, but <laughs> it isn't because you're she getting sceptical looks from this side of the table. I don't think it is because she hasn't got the ability to deliver it at the moment, and that's the problem. If you're appealing to leave voters, even leave voters who would be satisfied with the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration as it stands at the moment, the Conservative Party has not been able to deliver that, and there will be an opportunity through these European Parliament elections to express anger at that. But the whole point of her televised uh, statement, the, the angry one, was this appeal to the people and actually then having that opportunity in the European Parliament elections would be that opportunity. But she wrote back from that one yeah. with her chummy sofa one, yeah. wobbly camera one at the weekend, which was a kind of an appeal to people getting a bit more that comfortable. That is true, with. but I, I think she thinks in her blood that the, the population is in some way behind her and it's the MPs that are being pesky and having some signal that that was in fact true might be helpful. I mean, I'm just speculating on but that. But even if you thought that, even if the Leave voters who support the withdrawal agreement think that about Theresa May and what she's done, they've still got to deal with the fact that it is Conservative MPs in the ERG or a minority of Conservative MPs in the ERG that have then impeded her delivering that. So they can still be angry at the Conservatives and not want to vote for them because they failed to deliver Brexit. So, so this question of who the people want, we'll come on to at the end. I want to ask two general questions because we don't know what's going to happen and we certainly don't know what's going to happen between now and the end of May in both senses. What do you think either with the benefit of time or with the benefit of distance, looking at what I think everyone would now agree is the struggle that Britain has had, that the UK has had, to leave the European Union. It's been a long time since the referendum. We have a parliament where some MPs are desperate to leave the European Union. Many would prefer not to, but recognise it ought to happen. And it's only a minority who want to stop it. And yet it's becoming harder and harder to see how it happens. So what lesson would people, do you think, outside this process take from that, whether it's a country in the future that might be going through it again or some similar kind of upheaval? Because there are a range of options here. You might think, actually, at root, the problem here is Ireland and the Irish border. And so it's very much a distinctive problem of this country trying to do this thing. You might think, 
it's a slightly more general problem, but still fairly distinctive to the UK, which is our system of parliamentary government. The fact that we're not used to coalition politics, and so we've had a government which is a minority government trying to act as though it had a majority. Or you might think, actually, there's a lesson here about leaving the European Union. <laughs> it's really, really hard. And those aren't the only choices, but I'm offering you those three <laughs> to pick between or offer another one. My feeling is that Ireland is a huge part of this. And absent the Irish question, we would have left the European Union by now. I think that that is correct. But I think that part of the reason why it's correct goes to the bigger or the structural question about Article 50 in the EU treaties. Because basically what Article 50 says, if you wanted to leave the European Union, you have got two years in which to negotiate your withdrawal from the union and at the end of that process you will not be in a position to have put a different economic relationship with the European Union into place. So it pretty much guarantees there's going to then have to be a transition period in which a set of further negotiations are going to take place. So it makes the whole thing very lengthy. Now given that in any member state I think politics leaving the European Union would be bitterly domestically contested as it being here that is a long time for domestic politics to try to stay in one place rather than change as that process plays itself out and we've seen that in spades if you like because we put a general election into this time period which resulted in a different result in terms of majority minority than when we started article 50 I think then you can say that the Irish border is a really difficult question because it's a really difficult question not just for the UK's membership of the European Union but it's actually a really difficult question for the future territorial existence of the United Kingdom as a multinational state and that what has made it really hard is is that what was supposed to be negotiations according to Article 50 about the past relationship that would lead to withdrawal treatment ended up having to absorb into it the future question about the Irish border. And that was done once Varadkar's government introduced the backstop into discussion. So you make what is a really difficult question anyway, the Irish border, then you intersect it with the time frame of Article 50 and what Article 50 is supposed to do, and it creates this cut-off point, and it's pretty, I think, predictable, even if we actually left aside the question of us having a minority government, that this is proven to be as fraught as it has. So your answer is all three? It is, I'm afraid, yeah. <laughs> just, just one question on Article 50. This is the sort of paranoid question. Was it designed to be really hard? What's interesting is that it was designed to do something initially relatively simple, which was just to formalise a right in international law to withdraw from a treaty. But I think the point that Helen's making is not only does it do that, it then, as soon as you do that, as soon as you trigger it, you're then involved in in the routines, the standing operating procedures, the means of doing things of how the EU operates and works. And that is very difficult for the withdrawing state, while at the same time you've got this two-level game going on with the national political system, the national constitutional order, which is in many ways completely unrecognised in the, in the sense that although it does say, you know, must be in accordance with the national constitutional requirements, it doesn't realise how much they're going to be stress-tested through that through that withdrawal process. I mean, presumably other countries, other European countries, have been looking at us having what is effectively a political nervous breakdown. And they must be drawing lessons already. I mean, everyone must be thinking there, but for the grace of God. And yet, 
many countries are going to be facing similarly large and contentious constitutional and other questions, questions around referendum. I mean, people must be starting to draw up their kind of Brexit watch list of what not to do. It was very telling that uh, former President Mary McAleese in Dublin two weeks ago was talking about a future border poll on, on unification and what that would look like. And she directly drew lessons from Brexit to say, look what happens when you don't prepare. And she was so talking, that's the lesson, prepare. So, so pre- clearly to prepare and also... Because that have, wasn't one of my three options, that we should have just been better prepared. I mean, we, I'm sure we should And that's been. not just a purely technical level of preparing the way that I described earlier in terms of you know, legislative frameworks, etc. It was, no, you need to bring in all the relevant civil society organisations, stakeholders to address all the nuts and bolts difficult questions that that kind of referendum will throw up and to be prepared for them in advance before they happen. Now, you cannot anticipate every eventuality, but the point I think that she was trying to make was that Brexit showed you what happened when you weren't prepared for the outcome I mean, I think that the preparation question is very clear. The UK government could have been significantly better prepared, much better prepared than it was. But I don't think that is actually a fundamental explanation of of what has happened. I mean, I think there is, a, in some sense, an even deeper question that comes out of your question, David, which I hadn't quite thought about before until you asked it, which is, is that these questions ultimately, you know, possibly a unified island, the UK trying to leave the European Union are constitutional questions they are changing constitutional arrangements and in order for to have a constitutional order that's sustainable you need quite broad and reasonably deep agreement and maybe we have reached a point in our democratic politics in any number of countries where it's simply not possible to generate that kind of agreement any longer and that constitutional change comes about when constitutional systems that did have a reasonable amount of consensus have broken down but how do you go about generating sufficient consensus to get to the next constitutional order and the more polarised democratic politics have been which is in part what causes the breakdown of the constitutional order the more difficult then getting out of it becomes So that then leads to the last big question Something that got a lot of coverage this week is a report from the Hansard Society where they poll people, and they do it regularly, about, to put it very broadly, their faith or their confidence in the current democratic system in this country, in British democratic parliamentary politics. And there are some fairly startling findings. I mean, not you know, these are all part of a trend, and when you look at the full report, you can see that these sort of numbers have been ticking up over time. But the one that really got the headline was... The number of people who seem to have an appetite for what tended to be called in newspaper coverage a strong leader or an authoritarian leader. There's a taste for authoritarianism out there, if this is to be believed. And something, again, you'd think people like me who study politics would have thought of this before, but it never kind of quite occurred to me. It's much starker in this report, the extent to which that is driven not so much by people wanting some strong politician to come in and sort out their lives, you know, the frustrations that they experience around them or the people that they think are making their lives difficult, but just to come in and sort out the politicians, the other politicians. It's, it's pretty clear, I think, in this report that it's evidence of frustration with parliamentary politics. And these things are sort of juxtaposed in a way, the idea that can't we have a politician who can cut through politics rather than can't we have a politician who can cut through life? Um, and it's understandable that that kind of frustration would have been building up. I'm not saying it's desirable, but it it is understandable. It goes back to Kenneth's point about 
Theresa May's angry speech, not her sofa speech, where she, she was appealing, I mean, almost directly to that sentiment that was captured in the Hansard report, which is not we want sort of authoritarianism in our lives. But she was saying to people, you must be as sick of Parliament as I am. There's no question there. I think that's what someone on Twitter called me doing a manologue. I think it speaks to a frustration in this case that it has been impossible to produce a decision. So that actually, in some sense, we start off with a, a decision that is accepted by the government through so the referendum, referendum was a decision. decision. So there was a decision. There was a decision. And then we have Parliament made a decision which was to invoke Article 50 after the Supreme Court had made a decision that it was Parliament that had to make that decision and not the executive. And so far we are you know, proceeding with decisions in a way that might look like it makes sense. But I do think that the point where things go wrong in a way is, is when Parliament tries to involve itself in making decisions that it actually isn't in a position to make either because it didn't have the authority to do it under our constitutional settlement or it doesn't have the will or it doesn't have the will to do it because it's not united actually want to make that decision and i was going to say it doesn't it it neither can because it's not a majority and neither in some sense does it want to have to you know so it, it lacks the will so then we we've reached an impasse and i think you can then see Theresa May's speech is an exasperation, the, the harder one, as an exasperation of Parliament's inability to decide. Because in one sense, the, the one thing that Parliament can do, which is clearly now whatever one thinks about the constitutional authority before the Miller case of that, is of Parliament having authority in relation to Article 50, is to revoke it. And I think it actually, in terms of the relationship between Parliament and the electorate, it would be better for Parliament to use that authority to revoke than it would be to ask the electorate, the people, to use that language to decide again. If that's if they want to cancel Brexit and that is a decision that the majority of Parliament wants to make, then it should take the decision upon itself. But I wonder if there's, the point you're making is whether there is this kind of substitution effect between the rules of politics, which you want to be in place to then make things function and things happen, and if they're not there... You have to substitute that with personality and the personality then has to be the thing that imposes the discipline and the rules and it's precisely because the normal rules of politics, the governments fail because they don't have majorities etc aren't in play. There is this desire for that to be then embodied in a person who will then somehow take control and even this kind of weird debate about whether the monarch should withhold consent is also then a kind of figureheady let's try and get somebody in who can who would exert some discipline and control on that I suppose the other reflection on that is to say well if that's how people really really feel would they be okay with the European Union exercising that authoritarian role in exercising that degree of of discipline and, and managing things to which the answer is well probably not and that speaks to your point which it's actually maybe therefore it is more about contrasting a personality-driven politics with a process-driven politics because authoritarian process-driven politics is not at all appealing to people, right? Oh, so so the, the European Union taking decisions for us, but not through some individual, some charismatic person, but just through 
I mean, we just have to remember the up yours Dolores headline to to remember that that people don't necessarily want to have a European figurehead, and you know, debates around whether Tony Blair would become European Council president. You know, again, did we want that kind of figureheady style of politician at at the European level? You could just as well say that the EU won't decide either. I mean, Macron could take a decision. Which is, is there could only be a short extension. To and let's get... say, we don't know. He, if, he, if in the next 12 hours he does, I... Helen just said that he might. And then, I didn't say, how would you You said he it? could. <laughs> okay, I meant it in a counterfactual, I hypothetical, and, and I don't think he what, 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 whatever sense. And he could then force this decision on Parliament that it has thus far been unwilling to make. Because at that point, if Macron were to exercise a veto or a longer extension, then Parliament is confronted with taking the decision as to whether it wants to revoke Article 50 or whether it wants to pass the withdrawal agreement. But it would seem, from what we're hearing anyway, that Macron doesn't have the will to make that decision either, or at least that he's fearful of the consequences of of doing so. Well, not for nothing did the Financial Times describe this as, as Macron's de Gaulle moment in relation to the UK. I mean, I think Macron's fear would be because the withdrawal agreement is in some sense for this parliament dead that the choice he would actually be forcing is between no deal and revoke. Because I don't think actually that it would be framed as withdrawal agreement or revoke. I mean, I did, I texted you at the weekend and asked this question. I mean, it's a real question because I wasn't sure, which is, again, it's not going to happen, but were Parliament confronted with the straight choice, this Parliament, no deal or revoke, would it revoke? It's difficult as time. The but, but, say, so, but in a hypothetical I world, would, I would think it would vote for revoke. Yeah, I mean, but the trauma, the sort of psychological trauma, when you just think about it, even confronted with the thing it said it will not do, which is no deal, were that the choice, no deal or revoke, this parliament would find that an incredibly difficult decision, and yet it won't vote for the withdrawal. I know, but this is where I think that it really does matter that parliament takes responsibility because if it is the the implicit will, if you like, of the majority of parliament that Brexit now should not happen then I do think in the circumstances it needs to take responsibility for that decision itself. It should not push it back onto the electorate, particularly when you think about the difficulties that constructing a question that could have any legitimacy would have in such a referendum. Because we would be at that point because actually the preferred option of Parliament is to revoke and to not have let Brexit happen. So it should take the responsibility for that decision. Yeah, the question I'm confident of the answer is if Parliament, again, in a hypothetical world, was faced with a choice between second referendum and revoke, it would vote second referendum. That is the problem, though, because it, because it is basically trying to escape the responsibility for its own actions. We are going to try and take a break from Brexit if we can, unless the government falls. We'll be talking about some other things over the next few weeks. Next week, I'm going to be doing the third in a series of talks about the future of democracy. We've got conversations coming up with Paul Mason, Jill Lepore, David King about climate. We have bags to buy. Please go to our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com, and you can find out how to get them. Do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. not going out. Kenneth, what exciting uh, things did you ask Yesterday was my wedding anniversary, mm. ah. so we went out for a relatively indifferent dinner. Happy anniversary, how many years? Thank you, three. Oh.
Yeah. 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 Yeah.